Okay, so... Hmm. <sighs> hmm. Hmm. This episode is kind of, uh, it's going to be kind of deep. Uh, maybe a bit distressing, especially if you have ever lost a loved one um, due to self-deletion. Look at this news report. I uh, became involved in this project when Philip entered my office a couple of years ago. And he looked like a very nice man. I had no idea who he was. He is a nice man, but he's also called Dr. Death. And he had this controversial idea. A long time ago, 22 years ago, when the world's first law came in in Darwin, Australia, I was involved as a doctor wanting to help terminally ill people die. And I thought I could give a lethal injection, but I'd rather have a machine so that they could press the button and allow the drugs to flow that would end their lives. So I built a machine, the deliverance machine, and it, uh, it was used by four people to have a peaceful death. But the idea of using a machine to allow a person to have absolute control really has been a long-term interest of mine. I didn't know how to react. I never thought about the subject before. I thought if I don't help him, he probably goes to someone else. We can help him. Why wouldn't we help him? As I watched that news report and others like it, I started noticing a pattern. There were definitely um, a couple of schools of thought in play, right? So one school of thought was that assisting people to uh, depart, I hate saying the word, um, assisting people to depart um, is a compassionate thing to do. It alleviates suffering and makes things better for the person who is uh, going through the trial. And I saw a lot of arguments that way. But as I, as I continue to read and study upon this, I also noticed that there were a lot of, I think, reasonable counter-arguments, which made me think that helping someone to depart in this way is not really the right thing to do. This is one of those topics where there are no easy answers. But I do want to bring up a lot of questions, particularly this one uncomfortable question, which is this. Should we fight for the right to die? The trend of medically assisted suicide is on the rise. It's on the rise all over the world, but I've noticed it especially in Canada. Check out this news clip from uh, Quebec. Yeah, because it's true, John, you know, our medically assisted dying law really seems to be evolving in stages. Yesterday marks the end of another stage. Canada's laws have now been brought into compliance only a week before kind of an, a final deadline set by the court, but brought into compliance with the Quebec Superior Court ruling that found that it was unconstitutional to uh, prevent people for whom death was not reasonably foreseeable uh, from 
access to a medically assisted death. So with this law, they do have access. It is subject though to some particular checks and balances designed to make sure uh, that the bar is high uh, for situations where it could be used, trying to ease the minds of the disability community who feared that they could be pressured into doing something they don't want to do. So there is a 90-day uh, mandatory waiting period. Two different medical practitioners would need to sign off. And uh, there is a requirement for counseling and other support to be provided uh, to these people, making sure that a medically assisted death is only seen as sort of an option you would use when you have no other options. This phenomenon is not exclusive to Canada by any means. Uh, check out this uh, report here from CNN. Uh, and here is a quote which says this, physician assisted suicide is legal in 10 US states and the District of Columbia. It is an option given to individuals by law in Colorado, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, Maine, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. It is an option given to individuals in Montana and California via court decision. Individuals must have a terminal illness as well as a prognosis of six months to live. Physicians cannot be prosecuted for prescribing medications to hasten death. Now, assisted suicide advocates will tell you that making all of us in the body politic <laughs> complicit in these actions by virtue of certain laws in the United States, um, that this is the compassionate thing to do. You hear that a lot if you ever were to research this topic. Um, for example, in 2014, Brittany Maynard brought the right to die movement back into the country's consciousness. I can't even tell you the amount of relief that it provides me to know that I don't have to die the way that it's been described to me that my brain tumor would take me on its own. Before Maynard's death, the country was almost evenly split as to whether doctors should be legally allowed to assist terminally ill patients in committing suicide. Just a few years later now, 68% in favor, 28% against. Brittany's husband, Dan Diaz, was by her side from the moment they first met until Brittany took her last breath. When I was reading up on this topic, I saw a lot of pros and cons. On the con side, uh, people who were against this uh, action uh, pointed to what they call a slippery slope. What starts off as being uh, safe and rare turns out to be common <laughs> over a period of time. And I, I can see there, I can see why they would think that. Uh, check out this chart um, where, um, oh yeah, 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 this, this is it, this is it. Okay, so this chart details a 300% increase in assisted suicide in Washington state. And this is, um, this was very disturbing to me because when it was legalized in Washington, it was promised that this practice would be for limited use. And, um, but it has since increased to a more common cause of death in, in Washington, clearly. So starts off limited use, and before you know it, it's an everyday option. Um, so what's the worst case uh, behind this? Well, how to say this, how to say this. Pressuring people to 
in their lives and offering them the means to do so would be an efficient way to get rid of a population who are too much trouble to take care of and who are a drain on the overall healthcare industry. Removing them would make healthcare costs low. And some people would see that as a win-win scenario. Now, who are the people that I'm talking about? Well, the elderly, people with dementia, the disabled, infants who were born less than perfect, and the mentally infirm. I'll say that. Now, playing devil's advocate, doing this would ensure over time a healthy and thriving population that only a healthy and thriving population will remain. Now, if that sound, if that cold logic makes sense to you, and even though you admit that it's grim, but the argument makes sense, then congratulations, <laughs> you are a Nazi <laughs> because the Nazis did exactly that. Yes, yeah, so what's very interesting, this so-called euthanasia program, it's also known as Operation T4. Uh, this was one of the Nazis' very radical policies to help what they would have described as uh, to restore the racial integrity of the German nation, to cleanse the race. Of course, they did this by deporting and murdering uh, European Jews during the Holocaust. But one of their sort of... Uh, biological enemies that they really focused on within their own community were the people that they called the hereditarily ill, uh, also life unworthy of life. Today, we would call these individuals uh, persons with mental uh, disabilities, with intellectual disabilities or physical disabilities. And the Nazis believed that these individuals placed uh, both the genetic, that's important, a genetic as well as a financial burden on the society and the state. And at the same time made no, uh, according to the Nazis, made no significant contribution to society. So they are targeting disabled patients in institutionalized settings in Germany and Austria. Now, when you think of euthanasia from a historical perspective, you likely think that was horrible. Well, at least I hope you think that was horrible. But you also think that as horrible as that was, as terrible as that was, it would not happen again. That was the Nazis. Uh, that certainly wouldn't happen in today's times. Well, uh, you would be wrong. You would be wrong. Check this out. On April 19th, 2012, my mother receives a little injection in the hospital of the Free University in Brussels. But you had no idea? No. My granddad developed non-Hodgkin's lymph cancer at roughly 80 years of age. He was basically killed by the medical staff in the care home. My mother was physically healthy. I mean, she was, yes, indeed. She was going in and out of depressions all her life, but is this a reason for it? It is, yeah, apparently it is. We had a few times when the people tried to put us under pressure to have her uh, euthanized. She's just a child like every other child in our family. So my mother, instead of going for the palliative treatment, she said, I want euthanasia. 
Had there been no euthanasia in Belgium, she would not have applied, for sure. I think it's impossible to put uh, safeguards, because it's also impossible to know what is a terminally ill situation. In Belgium, patients are killed by euthanasia uh, at the first diagnosis of Alzheimer or of a malignant disease of a cancer. From all the cases, only 60 to 70 percent were declared to the Commission. So this means that 30 to 40 percent of the cases of euthanasia are even not declared and there is no control of the law. She was the one going to die, but we were her sons, we loved her, and we wanted the best for her. Was there a consensus? There was not a consensus. As a mother, it wasn't only her quality of life, it was also the quality of life of her own grandchildren. Well, the law says that uh, nobody has to be uh, aware of the demand of the patient. It's only the patient who will decide. It is strange because at the same time they don't respect the autonomy of doctors who want to not do euthanasia and they even don't respect the autonomy of institutions who don't want to choose for euthanasia. An aunt of mine uh, was visiting uh, him and she was giving him some water and one of the nursing staff came by and said to her, don't do that, you're prolonging the process of his dying. And she said, what? You see, once you're dead, you're dead. So there's no chance of changing your mind. That's the finality of this. You must understand that this issue is not like any other. I regret my mother had a treatment on that level. I think she and all the other people dying deserve more. We owe it to them. This is a worldwide issue. This is an issue now that is being debated in nearly every country in the world and there's pressure in almost all jurisdictions of the world to legalize doctors killing their patients. We help people to die controlling their suffering and controlling their symptoms. We don't help them to die by killing them. What is our society becoming? It's a quality society. Only the best will survive. I predict that in the future, the near future, this topic will bubble up into the political mainstream. And when it does, I will oppose it. Why? Well, three reasons. Reason number one, it may not be a painless death. Now, advocates for assisted suicide say that people who are terminally ill have the right not to be subjected to any prolonged pain brought on by their medical conditions. And they go on to say that this is simply a more humane way to relieve their suffering, uh, suffering that they would not be able to recover from and uh, go on to a better place. So, so there's that. But the argument of relieving prolonged suffering might not necessarily ring true. Check out this information from uh, Dr. Zivit, who is an anesthesiologist 
um, and a professor at Emory University here in Atlanta, Georgia. All right, bring up uh, bring up his article if you would. Yeah, you got to see this. Bring this up. Um, yeah. I am quite certain that assisted suicide is not painless or peaceful or dignified. In fact, in a majority of cases, it is a very painful death. The death penalty is not the same as assisted dying, of course. Executions are meant to be punishment. Euthanasia is about relief from suffering. Yet for both euthanasia and execution, paralytic drugs are used. These drugs given in high enough doses mean that a patient cannot move a muscle, cannot express any outward or visible sign of pain. But that doesn't mean that he or she is free from suffering. Now, um, and of course, you can't ask him. <laughs> you can't ask him after, after the fact. Um, Dr. Zivit argued this um, with another doctor on, on CNN. Here, here's a clip. But afterwards, um, you know, that's the point. And I can't, again, ask an executed person, like the amnesia that they would have is useless to them, isn't it? It's, it's a fascinating point. And the idea that someone could still experience other things despite, uh, you know, being under the influence of that medication, I think is a really important point. And as you point out, we don't have the opportunity to go back and reevaluate. No. You suggested in the USA Today editorial that a firing squad, a guillotine, something like that. Were you being facetious or are you, are you being honest? Look, my view on the death penalty, the rightness or wrongness of the death penalty, is really not at issue. I will tell you that lethal injection won't work. It won't work. Even if it looks like it works, it won't. It won't satisfy the question of cruelty. So if states choose to execute, how they choose to execute is their business, but they can't use medicine to do it. That's my position. Is it the least uh, sort of cruel, least, uh, you know, and the most humane? To my view, it is no less cruel than any other method per se. There's Firing nothing squad. in it. it only, the only reason why lethal injection appears to be less cruel is because of how it appears. And it appears like that because of paralyzing drugs, for example, where they just don't move around and there's maybe there's no spilling of blood or there's no sounds. You know, it's really like this is, I think as I've said, this is a, honestly a little bit of theater. It's the appearance that is being created here. You know, the curtain goes up, the curtain goes down. It feels very unseemly. Another reason why I'm against assisted suicide is the profit motive. Check out this quote from the American Association of People with Disabilities. I think AAPD, did I get that right? Yeah. The American Association, this is from the American Association of People with Disabilities. That's what I mean. All right. And here's the quote here. Bring it up. And the quote says this. Just weeks after California legalized physician-assisted suicide in 2015, Stephanie Packer was informed by her insurance company that the chemotherapy she requested to treat terminal scleroderma, oof, that sounds bad, uh, terminal scleroderma was not an option they were willing to provide, but medication to aid in physician-assisted suicide was. Packers insured and offered a $1.20 copay. Hmm. They offered a $1.20 copay for a handful of life-ending prescription drugs. While it is no doubt true that but offering to aid in dying rather than assisted, that rather, ah, 
Let's try that again. While it is no doubt true that by offering to aid in dying rather than assist in living, insurance companies can save millions of dollars each year, millions of dollars each year, insurance companies can save millions of dollars each year, the high cost of physician-assisted suicide only begins there. Hmm. Reason number one why I am against assisted suicide is because it does not necessarily mean that you have ended the prolonged suffering of someone. They could be in a lot of pain. They just won't be able to express it. Reason number two why I'm against assisted suicide is the profit motive. Insurance companies would be able to save millions of dollars in not treating people who are suffering, but rather giving them a cheap pill to send them on their way. And then there is reason number three. The third reason why I'm against assisted suicide is societal pressure. Societal pressure. Ooh, societal pressure. Okay, check this out. The Charlotte uh, Lozier Institute had a Q&A about this topic. And during their, um, uh, during their program, they uh, did a Q&A with different scholars. And one of the scholars, uh, a guy named Richard Durflinger, what's his name? Richard Durflinger. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. If I'm pronouncing it wrong, Dude, forgive me. Hey, uh, so Richard Durflinger, um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, had this to say uh, about um, physician-assisted suicide. He said this. Bring up, yeah, bring up the quote. All right. So the question he asked, he, he, he the question he was answering specifically was this: What is the most common argument in favor of legalizing physician-assisted suicide, and what are the flaws in the argument? All right. And this is how how he responded. He said, quote, uh, campaigning um, to end certain people's lives doesn't end suffering. It passes on the suffering to other similar people who now have to fear that they are the next people in line to be seen as having worthless lives. Societies that authorize suicide as a choice for some people soon end up placing pressure on them to do the right thing and kill themselves. Seeing suicide as a solution for some illnesses can only undermine the willingness of doctors and society to learn how to show real compassion and address patients' pain and other problems. In states that have legalized assisted suicide, in fact, most patients request the legal drugs, excuse me, the lethal drugs, not due to pain or even fear of future pain, but due to concerns like loss of dignity and becoming a burden on others, attitudes that these laws encourage. The solution is to care for people in ways that assure them that they have dignity and it is a privilege, not a burden, to care for them as long as they live. Hmm. Well said, sir. Well said. The Jim Strauss Show will return after these messages. This episode of The Jim Stroud Show brought to you by Conservative Television of America, working hard to stick socialism where the sun don't shine. 
Conservative Television of America is now available on Fire TV Stick, Roku, and on the Conservative Television of America website. Tune in now at www.ctva.tv. Conservative Television of America. We say what you're thinking. The Jim Stroud Show is back. Thanks for watching. Well, look who's with me today. Tell me, young lady, who are you and what do you do? It's great to be back again, Jim. I'm Kathy Chamberlain, otherwise known as the deplorable author. Hmm. And I've written a book called Rules for Deplorables, a primer for fighting radical socialism, which is really a counter to Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Uh, if the audience knows who that is. And if they don't, he's the father of community organizing. And truly, his book, Rules for Radicals, is the Bible of the left. A lot mm. of people don't realize that he dedicated it to n none other than Lucifer. And it, <laughs> it includes 13 tactics, which the left uses. It's a guidebook for them uh, to use to transform our country to socialism. So it's been out there for quite a while, since 1971, and nobody's really taken it and broken it apart step by step. And each one of my chapters opens with one of Saul Alinsky's tactics to explain by using current events, how they're being used and how we can turn them back around on the left. That's interesting that you say it was dedicated to Lucifer. So does that mean that many people on the left, maybe not all, but maybe some of the more uh, hard left <laughs> out there, uh, they're being influenced by the devil himself, I guess. Is, would that be a stretch to say that or? Not at all. You know, we, we hear all the time that we're in a battle, be, uh, a spiritual war, really, between mm. good and evil. And this just aligns so well into that, if you think about it. So, no, we, we have some devious people on this planet trying to do great harm to not just the United States of America, but humanity. But of course, we're that last standing bastion to stand in the way of that. Now, in your book, you have, you mentioned um, a Solalinsky tactic, tactic, and then you will um, discuss a counterpoint, I guess, the, the more conservative reaction to that. So if you would uh, humor me, so like one Solalinsky tactic is uh, power is not only what you have, but what your enemy thinks you have. Uh, talk about that a little bit. What would be the conservative counterpoint to that? Well, we're seeing that one used on a daily basis for the last year and a half, two years now uh, on the COVID scene. Mm. And uh, they, they have taken that entire narrative and have uh, put so much fear into everybody by um, by kind of uh, changing all the the actual numbers and and creating a uh, really a scene that isn't even close to reality. So that's given them a lot of power. And uh, so what we have to do is keep that narrative based on truth and keep it out there as hard as it is to do these days. That's exactly why they're trying to shut down so many conservative voices, because so many of us are trying to get that word out. Um, but we have to just keep hitting back hard on what the truth actually is, because the more we do, the more we strip their power away. Mm. Another uh, tactic that Solinsky um, famously said is uh, ridicule is man's most potent weapon. 
Can you talk about that? Well, have you ever been called bad names? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and what yeah. does it do to you? I know what it does to me. Immediately, a human response is to recoil from that and to become silent. We don't. And there's a twofold uh, way that they they play that that tactic. Mm. Number one, it's meant to silence the person they target. Right. Mm-hmm. And so because we don't want to bring any more attention to ourselves when we're called bad names. If I'm called a, if I'm called a sexist, oh, my God, I have been, believe it or not. Um, and so, you know, but it, your immediate thought is, am I? And then you start kind of just hushing up. But the, the second part of that is even more damaging. And that is that they want to make you radioactive to others. So other people, when the finger's being pointed at you, then they don't want that finger to turn around and point at them. And so they want nothing to do with you. And so it's a real divisive uh, tactic that they use and very effective. Oh, and let's not forget, Mm -hmm. I I just have to add this in. I thank Hillary every day for using that tactic against uh, Trump supporters by calling us all (laughs) deplorables because she gave me the title of my book. (laughs) (laughs) there you go would you say another example of this is uh would be i'm thinking when uh larry elder was running for governor during the gavin newsom uh, recall election and the press was calling him the the black face of white supremacy fantastic example absolutely and you see how that really played out you know now sometimes there's a tactic that says a tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag. And they really do overplay their hands on things. But it works because Americans have a sh- such a short term memory, don't we? And yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, another tactic is uh, I think that Solinsky does is to make your enemy live up to his own rules. Can you, can you explain that tactic? That's a good one. Um because, well, the example that I use in my book really centered around uh, Judge Kavanaugh when he was actually uh, being uh, questioned in his testimony to become the Supreme Court justice, right? Mm. And, and he is the, the right, we, we tout ourselves as the gold standard for standards, for values, for principles, for doing what's right. And so what the left does is they take what we say is the right way to live and they throw it at us like a like a pie in the face. Um, And so, you know, of course, that was all one big fat lie about him. But if they could make the public even think that he is not following a an example of what a conservative should be and says that we are. Uh, then they, that's what they did to him. And it worked very effectively. Wow. Wow. It sort of reminds me of another tactic. Um, I think it is uh, the threat of something is more dangerous than the thing actually is. Well, and that goes back something to COVID like that. too. And that goes what now? Back to the, the way that COVID has been dealt with. Hmm. Right. Because Mm. um, they have been fudging numbers, you know, right back to the models, the IMHE models that were used to calculate how many deaths were going. What was it? One point two million. Remember, in the United States alone. And what did that do? That created such a fear 
uh, amongst people. So that threat alone, just saying that uh, Americans have to stand up a lot stronger to this stuff and start really looking into what actual truth is behind what the left has to say. When you um, when someone recognizes the different tactics from Saul Alinsky, uh, different things in the news take on a different kind of perspective for them. At least I think so. Uh, for example, when I look at the news coverage of January 6th, for example, and I see how uh, the press and different politicians were laboring or were labeling those people domestic terrorists, and not only them, but people who disagree with the teaching of critical race theory in the school. And when the parents um, uh, spoke out against it, they too were labeled as domestic terrorism, uh, domestic terrorists. What tactics do you see in, in that kind of coverage, news coverage? Yeah. These are very dangerous times. What they're using is Alinsky tactic number 13, pick a target. So in the case of January 6th, who did they pick? They picked Trump uh, supporters. That, right. was all, that was all by design, Jim. People don't realize mm. the left is so many steps ahead of conservatives on, on this game. And so when they picked that target, they don't just pick the target and that that whole tactic, by the way, is pick the target, freeze it, meaning keep it in the news constantly so everybody's attention is on it, then personalize it, make them sound like KKK and uh, white supremacists and all the horrible things that we associate with real terrorists. And then the final part of that tactic is isolate, polarize them. So they're trying to divide us so they can pick us off one by one. In fact, the DHS came out on January 27th with a bulletin. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but in that bulletin, it was almost like a training manual for the DHS and the FBI came out with the same thing. And, 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 and let's think about that. That was one week after Biden was installed in our White House. So what happened is those are manuals for our agents, training manuals, so mm. that they know how to recognize what is an actual homegrown violent extremist and what they define in those manuals. And I'm telling you actual quotes, your audience can look this up January 27th. They say of this year, 2021, those manuals stipulate that anybody who has for, um, who has complained about COVID restrictions or election fraud um, and uh, they, the, uh, the presidential transition, those three things are named in there, um, are identifying marks of what they, they're deeming are uh, homegrown or domestic violent extremists. They're called HVEs or DVEs is how they, they uh, define them. So that is really frightening stuff. And uh, uh, Alinsky tactic number 10 is the perfect tactic is one which draws on multiple tactics at once coming after your opposition. So they're really flanking us in all directions right now. They're going all out because they realize if they don't win in 2022, this is their best chance ever. So we've got it flying in our face from all directions. That is, uh, hmm. 
That is interesting. And, and thanks for, for mentioning that because I was going to ask, why do you think it's, it's, it feels so concentrated that you just sort of make, make sense of it? Because I've heard many rumors um, uh, of, of a huge red wave coming in the midterm elections when a lot of uh, Republicans would take over and a lot of Democrats uh, uh, are already retiring uh, in view of that potentiality of Republicans coming to power because it seems like a lot of people left and right uh, uh, don't appreciate a lot of the hard left liberal policies and what is done to a lot of their cities, which is why a lot of people are leaving California, for example, um, to go to Idaho or Florida. <laughs> I wish I had some property in Florida. I pr- I'd probably make a million dollars if I sold it right now. <laughs> 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 that kind of thing. Um, this is this is fascinating to me because Again, when you recognize the different tactics, you're able to see them. Let me throw another news item out at you. You tell me which tactics are being used. Sure. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, when he was put on, when he was arrested and put on trial, a lot of people, a lot of people still, even now to this day, think that um, he was out there specifically to hunt down uh, black BLM supporters and he was shooting them in the street and he's killed uh, several BLM supporters um, to this day, you know, and even though he was acquitted of all counts because there were people there who actually looked at the evidence and then go with uh, their passions, uh, he was able to 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 leave and get his freedom back. Uh, what tactics do you think were used throughout that whole um, court case and the, the case of public opinion, rather, and in the case of, uh, of the courthouse? Well, in a lot of these if you notice the way a lot of these incidences are reported, Hmm. the left loves to make things very convoluted, right? There's a tactic number three that's not very often talked about, but Hmm. it's whenever possible, go outside the experience of the enemy. And what that means is that the more convoluted you can make something sound, the more chaotic it is, it throws your your opposition into, you know, people are not accustomed to reading beyond the headlines. Okay. And the left knows this. And so, I mean, you can find tactic number number, uh, uh, five, ridicule on him is man's most potent weapon. Sure. You can you can find 13 very easily pick the target. I mean, look at how long they targeted him and froze him and and what they did to him and then they interspersed the ridicule uh tactic in there uh, with that um but the other thing that they're very good about is tactic 8 keeping the pressure on See, we're not good about that. The conservatives are not. We, if you you remember the whole story with Fast and Furious, for example, mm-hmm. we go mm-hmm. after major crimes like that that have been uh, conducted by the left. And then what happened to them? Can you even tell me what the ultimate uh, outcome <laughs> to that was? Right? right? We forget because we it, it goes on for so long and the left makes it so convoluted that most of us just don't follow it the russia 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 same thing there um and so when they when they uh, describe certain news events to us and they do it in such a way that they make it so convoluted like you said they got into all these facts about it that really don't make sense 
And that makes us feel stupid. And so when they do that to us, we're like, oh my God, I just, there's no way I can follow this. I, I, I got to get to work. This is, this is intentional folks. So that's what they do. I also noticed too, that the press will shape a story a certain way, promote it over and over again. I mean, um, uh, they did it, certainly did that a lot with Trump, but that's not the only uh, person they, they do this with, but they'll frame a story a certain way, have you believe a certain thing. And then when the opposite is true, they don't apologize. Well, they, they certainly don't bring it to your attention that they were wrong all this time. Is that a, a tactic itself? And I'm, I'm thinking also, I'm thinking actually of, uh, again, of Rittenhouse, because when he was acquitted of all counts, there were some on the left, I think, who uh, I think it was the, the Young Turks, for example, uh, they came out and said they were wrong. Uh, but there were like maybe one or two others who may have admitted they, that they were wrong, but majority of, of the press did not say anything. And I think the ones who did say something, maybe they were concerned about a lawsuit um, and thinking that they're going to get sued for uh, yes, slander. <laughs> I, we've we've slander. seen that play with Sandman already. He, he's yeah. a perfect example. He's still suing people. He's still yeah, suing people. Yeah. He's got a settlement, I think. I know, his first one was $250 million. I don't know what the second one was. Uh, yeah. I don't know the amount, but I think it was against NBC. But yeah, uh, no, you're absolutely right. And there's also within the um, Rules for Radicals book, not just 13 tactics, but there are 11 rules of ethics. Hmm. And yes, and they know them very well. And they range from basically what they teach, what Ilinsky teaches the left is the more important the goal to be achieved, the less ethical you need to be. And yes, and- The um, ends justify the means, I guess, is that another way of saying that's it? That's correct. Um, okay. I believe it's uh, uh, rule number three uh, of the uh, uh, rules of ethics is that if it's war, and they say this is war by any means necessary, that ethical rule gives them actually the- the AOK to do whatever is necessary. And in fact, Saul Alinsky had a saying um, that is in his book that I also write about that says, if you ever do uh, uh, punch somebody below the belt, and if it's really an, an important goal to be achieved, go right ahead and do it. But the one thing you never do is apologize. Hmm. And so that's that's really ingrained in their heads. And, you know, if if uh, viewers don't know this, this is really required reading rules for radicals uh, by liberals. And they're what Stalin called useful idiots. Right. And they're the ones who are going to wake up one day because I, I differentiate liberals from leftists. Okay. I was. Oh, absolutely. I was once a flaming liberal myself. So mm. that's why I know these things. And I actually read his book many years ago when I was living in California and was of that mindset because I became incredibly indoctrinated by them. I was brought up in a conservative household, but no, I became a, a big liberal. And so I that was required reading. And that's why many, many years later, I ended up writing the counter to it because I saw how the left was winning this war and was treating President Trump at the time 
and I could recognize immediately the tactics and nobody else seemed to know what was happening. So that's why I wrote the book originally. So let me ask you this, according to the ethics of Saul Alinsky, mm -hmm. if you are in the midst of an election season and you think one particular candidate is the next Hitler, uh, so you take it upon yourself to do whatever you need to do to make sure that this next Hitler doesn't get elected or reelected. So that means stuffing a ballot box or sneaking votes in yes. after the hours, or if it means putting in machines that can change your vote uh, via the internet, um, whether it means anything along those lines, you feel that you're doing the right thing, although uh, others may look at that and say you are um, destroying our election integrity by doing those things. Uh, do you think would that fall into the realm of ethics and according to Sololinsky, that would be the right thing to do? You're right on target. As a matter of fact, he talks about Hitler in his book. And mm. when he's explaining the ethical rules uh, with one of them, he said, you know, the people in World War II who fought underground um, to fight against Hitler, he was justifying that they could use any means necessary. So isn't it interesting that today they've taken that and actually made Trump the Hitler. And that is absolutely why they have justified any means necessary. And that's going to include a lot worse in the future than stuffing ballot boxes. We're coming into some very, very dangerous uh, frightening times. Yeah. And Trump is a good example uh, to talk about in that. But I I don't think that's that's just one example. Uh, to your point, it, it's him today to be somebody else tomorrow. I mean, a lot of people are looking at DeSantis in case Trump doesn't run. Mm -hmm. And if DeSantis becomes um, the Republican nominee, he'll be the new Hitler to a lot of people. Um, and, and conversely, they'll probably say that about whoever's on the Democrat side as well, just to be fair. Um, it's really interesting. Absolutely. And if I can say, because Please. people even say to this day, well, maybe I hear this once in a while, geez, you know, if only Cruz had won, <laughs> then, you know, we wouldn't have gone through the past five years that we did because they they think in their minds that Trump is the 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 evil, you know, that, right. that he was a, an easy target. Right. But right. what they don't understand is they would have done the same thing to Cruz. The difference is Cruz would never have been able to stood up to stand up to that kind of scrutiny that Trump did. Mm. And you see, so yeah, you're right. I mean, it's going to be whoever jumps into the ring next. Definitely. Uh, your book is um, phenomenal. I mean, it gives a lot uh, to, to think on, uh, but in some ways it seems too short. Like you, like you almost need to, to write a sequel <laughs> because there's just so much stuff happening. Well, can I, can I ask you um, any plans to write a sequel to this? Well, interesting that you would say that because I have been asked by many people for the last probably year, when's the sequel coming? And <laughs> I'm finally trying to slow myself down. I'm, I do a lot of activism work, a lot of volunteer work and a lot of uh, speeches. And, you know, I tour, tour the state of Florida and on uh, my Florida deplorable book tour. Uh, so I did sit myself down finally, and I have started that second book, and I'm really, really hoping um, 
this one because I've been through it once now. The hardest part to me is not the writing, it's the formatting and, it, and getting it actually up on Amazon mm. um, and the other distributors. So I am working on it. I'll keep you posted, Jim. Hopefully you can let your, your listeners know. Most definitely, most definitely. So where can someone buy the, 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 uh, your book now, but, uh, both of them, but for right now, the one you have out now, where can they buy it? Well, I highly encourage people to go first to my website, which is rulesfordeplorablesbook.com. And secondarily, if they have to go to Amazon, because Amazon just started censoring me, believe it or not, Amazon <laughs> does that now. Yeah. And I found out because I my book reached number 14 on Amazon's top 25 in politics, believe it or not. I wow. was that was a real, real nice surprise for me. And I was all excited until that came with censorship. Now they know about the book. And so if you try to buy more than one, a sign will pop up saying this seller only limits uh, books to one per Amazon customer. That's how they do it. Thank you so much for being on the show, Kathy. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, my time is up. I thank you for yours. I'll see you again real soon right here with a brand new episode. Until next time, bye-bye.